Well, good evening, everybody. It is so good to see you. Um, as I was reflecting on today and what I might say or preach with you, to you, I thought of nothing better than to look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And specifically tonight, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite sections of scriptures. And maybe a section of scripture that really doesn't get that much attention. I'm not sure why, but it's an amazing section of scripture. So if you have your Bibles with you tonight, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. And tonight we are going to be looking at the resurrection of the widow's son. Again, the resurrection of the widow's son. Son, And as you're turning there, um, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your word. That you brought us to this place tonight, Lord, to study your word. And give us a better understanding of Christ and who he is. And we pray, Lord, as we look into your word, we would marvel at you. That your name would be exalted that we would leave this place more in awe of you, loving you more than we did when we came in, Lord. We pray that during this time, Lord, that you would increase and I would decrease and that Christ would be magnified through it all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So hopefully you found in your Bibles by now Luke chapter 7. And before we jump into Luke chapter 7, I just want to build a little bit of literary context and uh, there's a couple of themes that Luke has de been developing as he's working through his gospel here. And one of the themes that he's developing is the deity of Christ. And he's doing that by illustrating the many miraculous healings of Christ. Of course, Luke, being a doctor, would point to many of these miraculous healings. But as you start looking at the gospel of Luke, you'll notice that right away... Luke starts highlighting some of these miracles. And one of the first miracles we see is in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus heals the demon-possessed man, thus pointing to his deity. Also, we see in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Then in Luke chapter 5, we see that Jesus heals a leper. Then again, later in Luke chapter 5, we see that Jesus heals a paralytic. Then in Luke chapter 6, you're getting the theme here. Then in Luke chapter 6, we see that Jesus heals a man with a weathered hand. Then in the beginning of Luke chapter 7, we see that Jesus heals the centurion's servant. So as we jump into the center section of Luke chapter 7, we see that we're riding this wave of miraculous miracles. And what Luke is doing is he's presenting Jesus as the great physician who comes to those in need. Again, Luke is presenting Jesus as the great physician who comes to the, the need of those who need the help of Christ. Are you with me? But before I, we jump in even further into Luke chapter 7, all these miracles point, clearly point, to the deity of Christ. And I know as we're coming out of the Christmas season, we've heard a lot about the deity of Christ but this is one of the points that we cannot overemphasize. The reasons why that there's cults today is because they get Jesus wrong. There's lots of other religions out there that might have some good principles, but guess what? They get Jesus wrong. 
And as we study the scriptures, we see that there are warnings that the gospel writers and the epistle writers give us about getting Jesus wrong. There's a lot of harm that comes with getting Jesus wrong. Number one, you'll have a wrong source of truth. But number two, you'll be worshiping a false god. And we want to worship the true God in truth. Amen? And so take a look before we really jump in further, the importance of getting Jesus right. In 2 John verse 9, this is what John says. Anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ, this includes Jesus' teaching on himself, does not have God. The one who remains in his teaching has both the Father and the Son. Also, we see in the Gospels, listen to what Jesus has to say in John chapter 8, verse 24. Therefore, I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Can you see how it's critical that we get Jesus right? So keep that in mind as we work our way through Luke chapter 7. Hopefully by now you're in Luke chapter 7 with me, and I'd like to read it with you. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a city called Nan, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not go on weeping. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding region. As I said earlier, isn't this an amazing section of scripture? The miraculousness of it all is just, to me, very captivating. And so as we uh, analyze this section of scripture, you see that Jesus is here with his disciples and a large crowd or an entourage. And it really is to no surprise that Jesus has an entourage with him because of all the miracles that he has done up to this point. Undoubtedly, the people with him are curious. Wouldn't you be? What is he going to do next? So within this large crowd of people, undoubtedly, there's curiosity seekers. And there are some people who are generally following Jesus. But notice this. As Jesus, his disciples, and this entourage is entering this small city... Another entourage is leaving at the same time. A funeral procession. And some of you might see this or someone might say this is a coincidence. We all know with God, there is no coincidence. coincidences. There's something called sovereignty. 
in God's providence. So at exactly the right time, Jesus comes encounter with this group of people and this woman at the right time. So as we take a deeper look, specifically at one of the characters of this account, we see this woman. And as you look at this woman, you see from the text that she lost her husband and her only son. So this woman here was well acquainted with grief. I remember hearing not too long ago from a psychologist and they were looking through different brain scans and looking at the emotions of different people And these psychologists said one of the worst griefs that a person can encounter is the loss of a child. And I'm the father of of four boys and many other foster kids. The thought of losing any of them, I don't even like to think about it, but it's devastating. But this poor woman, not only has she lost her only son, but she's also lost her husband. And even the Bible echoes the grief of losing a son. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 26, Jeremiah is calling the nation to mourn. But notice how he calls the nation to mourn. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 26, he says this, Make mourning as for an only son, the most bitter lamentation. So even the prophets know that this grief of losing a son is very intense, but this poor woman, she's not only incurring emotional devastation, at this point she's about to encounter very much financial devastation. Because in the world that she lives in, her provision comes from her husband. She doesn't have one. The next source of provision would be her son, She doesn't have one. Without a man in her family, there's a strong likelihood that she will become destitute. For a a Jewish community and for most communities, this is a very bleak, bleak and sad situation. But how did this all happen? The Bible doesn't give us specific answers as to how this happened. But we know if we go all the way back to Genesis 3, Sin has wrecked humanity. Not only sin, it has created despair and heartache for generations. And I was reading a little commentary up from J.C. Ryle, and he was evaluating this specific circumstances. And he noted this, in analyzing this situation, he says this, situations like this ought to make us hate sin. Because you see a woman like this, she's encountering sorrow, despair, and heartache because of sin originating with Adam and Eve. But someone might say, Adam and Eve lived so long ago, how can there still be consequences on this lady? Brothers, sisters, we know that sin has long-lasting impacts on families, on countries, and on people. Amen? And J.C. Rowley, he's telling us here, when we think about the consequences of sin, it should force us to hate it, not to love it. It should force us to hate it and not entertain it. And you know as well as I do, the culture that we live in today is forcing us to like it, forcing us to entertain it. 
But I'd like to give you some good advice. When you're being tempted with sin or being commercialized with sin, say no. Because you know of the consequences of sin. And someone might say that's unloving or unkind. Let me tell you this. Probably one of the most loving things you can do for your family, for your friends, and for your community is to say no to sin. Because of the consequences that it brings. Agreed? Yet, on a more positive note, as we see the devastation of sin in this woman's life, guess who shows up at the exact right time? Guess who shows up? Jesus, our source of hope. And we see here, similar to other miracles, notice here how Jesus engages the situation. He, first, he sees the need. Second, he immediately feels compassion for this woman. And thirdly, he helps in a divine way. Again, first he sees the need. He doesn't avoid the situation. He doesn't pretend like nothing is happening. He almost immediately jumps in. And number two, we notice that the Bible tells us that he has compassion for her. And if you look at the Greek word for compassion... You'll notice that if you translate it, it alludes to something like this, a deep, gut-wrenching, heartfelt compassion for this woman. It wasn't artificial. It was genuine. And really why that is important is because the compassion that Jesus had for the woman very much aligns with the compassion that God is described with in the Old Testament. From Exodus to Psalms, we see that God is what? A compassionate God. And if you look very clearly at Psalm 103, verse 8, the Bible tells us this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Brothers and sisters, as you know, our God is just. Amen? He is holy. He is loving, but he is also very compassionate. And we can see that playing out here. And listen, God wants to emulate him in being compassionate towards others. He wants, to, he wants us to have a similar gut-wrenching, heartfelt compassion for other people. And perhaps there is a person in your life that you haven't been compassionate towards. Perhaps your flesh got in the way. Perhaps you were hanging on to past hurts and you ignored this person. Maybe you were too busy. Maybe you were too harsh when you should have been sensitive. Seek that person out. Perhaps say you're sorry. And love on that dear friend because the Lord wants, to wants us to emulate him in being compassionate for others in a genuine way. Next, notice how Jesus engages this woman. He says to her what? Do not go on weeping. Do not go on weeping. Jesus in this moment emotionally connects with this woman and gives reassurance to her. Listen, many of us, 
many of us have been in heart-wrenching situations with family and friends. And sometimes in those situations, we do not know exactly what to say or do. Have you been there? If I could give you some free advice, when you find yourself in that situation, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Engage that person like Jesus is doing here, both emotionally and verbally. Be genuinely compassionate. Reassure the person and give hope. Brothers and sisters, I know you know that there's always hope. One of the best things you can do when you're counseling other people is reassure them and give them hope. And we know about hope as Christians. We know that there is hope because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is with what? With us. There is always hope. And remember, Jesus came to give us life. Eternal life, but also abundant life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus tells us a thief comes to seek, kill, and destroy. And I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Again, notice that Jesus right here, he's not trying to overanalyze the situation. He's not offering up a cynical response, but he is being sympathetic. Again, in this context, as we evaluate the behavior of Christ, he sees the need. He has compassion. And thirdly, he helps. He does something. He acts. Let's evaluate the actions of Christ here. It says, first, he walks up to the coffin. Now, honestly, I wonder what the pallbearers are thinking at this point. They're walking out with their entourage. Jesus is walking in with his. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts walking towards the coffin. Now imagine if you were a pallbearer and you're holding the coffin. And again, in this context here, the coffins are open. What would you be thinking? Hayward and I were talking about this situation earlier. And if both of us were pallbearers, would we say something to one another? We probably would, because Hayward's one of my friends. If we were both holding the casket together, I'd say, Hayward, do you see this? Why did you stop? I don't know. Why did you stop? I don't know. And then Jesus keeps walking towards the casket, to the coffin. And then what does he do? He touches it. And if you're looking at Jewish law, specifically, if you touch a dead body, what happens? You defile yourself. So here you are as a pallbearer. You have Jesus walking up, and then he touches it. I'm saying to Hayward, what's he doing? He's saying, I don't know. Should we do something? You go first. Right? Because sometimes when we read these stories, we think it's not historical reality. Luke is writing this as historical reality. It happened. Real people were holding this coffin. Agreed? And so what happens next? Here comes Jesus, touches the body, then he speaks to the dead body. Hayward, he's talking to the dead body. This is nuts. I know. Then what happens next? He sits up and he starts talking. Hayward and I were talking about this earlier. He said, what would you do in this situation? I told Hayward, I would drop the casket. Hayward said, I would run. 
Is he here? No, oh, he'd be blushing if he was. But he said he would run. And remember, this is so important because as this scene is developing here, there is 400 years of silence in the nation of Israel. It doesn't mean that the Maccabean revolt wasn't happening during this 400-year period. It doesn't mean that there wasn't different activities. But there was not a prophet of God in Israel for 400 years. Here you have Jesus, an entourage, speaking to dead people, and they're coming to life. Wow. Something divine is happening here. But as we think about Jesus helping this person... And you're in situations where you likely want to help people, but you're not God. You can't talk to dead bodies, touch them, and have them come back to life. So what can you do? What can we do when we find ourselves in a situation where God is guiding and directing us to help others? Well, one of the things that we can do right away is pray. But not just casually pray, but pray fervently. Pray with meaning and with purpose, because we get to engage the one who does have the power to do miraculous work. Also, like Jesus, we can be sympathetic in those situations. We can say, I am so sorry. We can say, you are not alone. We can weep with those who are weeping. I remember I found myself... Um, in an almost similar situation not too long ago where a friend of mine just suddenly died. And I think some of you have probably been in similar situations. And I remember going to this house to comfort the family and the loved ones. And there's really in that situation not much I could say. But I remember as I was responding, as trying to respond the best that I could in that situation, two other ladies from our church came. They didn't say anything. They just weeped. They felt compassion and sorrow and just hugged on this person. That's the best thing that they could do. And in doing so, and as the, as the temperature of the room started maybe dissipating and calming down, what could they do next? Point them to Jesus. That's what we can do. We can pray for people. We can emotionally weep with those who are weeping. And then we can also point them towards Jesus. Because remember, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I will give you rest. So in how Jesus responds to the situation, he acknowledges the need. He is very compassionate, and he acts. We can emulate Christ in this way. But let's go back to the text here. Let's go back to this resurrected man. And notice again in verses 14 and 15. And Jesus came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Notice, just like Jesus' other healings, that this man is immediately healed. He sits up and starts talking. And how does the crowd react? Like Hayward. They're afraid. It says right here in verse 16, fear gripped them. And they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has appeared among us and God has visited his people. Fear gripped them and fear would likely have gripped us. 
But the main point that I'm developing here, and hopefully that you're seeing as we evaluate this situation, one of the main points is this. Without a doubt, more than any of the other previous healings, this resurrection points to the deity of Christ. There really is no other way to explain it. People like you and me don't talk to dead bodies and resurrect dead bodies. Only God can give life and resurrect life. Listen, my kids sometimes, you ever play with your kids like with Play-Doh and you try to make something or Legos? I'm not very good at it. And really that points to the fact that I'm very far from God. God gives life and resurrected life. What Jesus is doing here is God's stuff. Agreed? Now remember, this isn't the only resurrection account that we see in the Gospels. Jesus also resurrects Lazarus. Jairus' daughter. But if you look down a couple more verses, if you go down to Luke chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, if remember, John the Baptist is in a season of life right now where he's basically needing some reassurance from others that Jesus is the Messiah. And some people, some messengers from John are sent to Jesus asking, I need some reassurance. And then Jesus responds and gives a reassuring answer back to the people that John sent. And this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, to reassure John the Baptist. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. People who were blind received sight. People who were limped walked. People with leprosy are cleansed. And people who were deaf hear Dead people, notice plural, dead people are raised up. So what we see here is there could have been more than three people that Jesus raised from the dead. All of this, what, pointing to his deity. But you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is great. Jesus is God. How does that impact my life and my day-to-day operations? Wow. There's many things I can say, but I want to give you a couple applications on how this can impact your life. One thing in particular is this. Accounts like this show us that there is nothing that Jesus can't overcome. I'm going to say that one more time because I think it's important. Accounts like this show us that there is nothing that Jesus cannot overcome. There's lots of different people in the room tonight. I really don't know your exact situation, perhaps that you're going through. But I know what the answer is. The answer is Jesus. Someone in this room might feel depressed, lonely, perhaps enslaved to sin at times. They might feel anxious, stressed. Your sin might be bothering you. But listen, As we see here, God has an amazing track record of helping those in despair. He gives supernatural forgiveness, rest, and peace. So we need to go to him and trust him even when we don't understand. We all know he is our only hope. Another way that this resurrection impacts us is this. In light of this resurrection... The other resurrections mentioned, and most importantly, the resurrection of Christ, we can have joyful confidence that God will resurrect our bodies and give us a perfect body one day. 
We can have confidence. Doesn't that sound crazy that one day when Jesus comes back, our bodies will come out out of the ground, we will be reunited with our soul, and we will have perfect bodies. Does that sound miraculous to anybody? Almost too good to be true. Anybody? Yes, but does God have a track record of doing this stuff? He's resurrecting people in his earthly ministry, and Jesus Christ himself was resurrected. So can we have confidence that one day Jesus will resurrect us and give us a new body? Yes, he will. Because it's very important that this resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Christ, is linked specifically to the power of God. How can we have hope in our resurrection? Because resurrection is linked to the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says this, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Can we trust the power of God? who spoke all of the universe into existence through his word. Can he raise dead people one day like you and I? Yes, he can. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 says this, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus. Listen, we all have struggles. And I would say that many of us, many of our struggles are linked to our sinfulness or our flesh or the flesh of others. But the good news is this. There is one day coming where we'll have new bodies and the struggle will be over. In light of that reality, how about we live for Jesus now? One day, a perfect body is coming. In light of that reality, how about we live for Jesus now? Amen? Now I want to really transition into my second point here, and it's this. As we study this text, and as we study this resurrection account, we begin to see that there's many parallels from this resurrection account to our own salvation. The resurrection of the widow's son parallels our salvation. And what I mean by that is this. There was a time in all of our lives where we were once spiritually dead. Yes, there was also a point in our lives where we were called by God. And there was also a point in our lives where God granted us new life. You see the parallels there? And there is no doubt if we study this text, this man is dead. It says it twice in the text here, dead in verse 12, dead again in verse 15. The attendance of the mother, the attendance of the crowd affirms that this man is dead. But if we look deeply into scripture, we can also, if we evaluate our salvation, there is no doubt that all of us at one point were also spiritually dead. So when we read this account and we see that a dead person was brought to life, we're like, yes, we're excited, right? Because we see King Jesus. Every time a spiritually dead person comes to life, we should celebrate because we can see the power of King Jesus. Now imagine, though, if you saw this young man, if you lived 2,000 years ago, and you saw this young man at Walmart or other places along the way, every time you would see this man, would you just give him a high five? And say, dude, I was at your funeral. You were dead. Jesus came. What? Would it ever get old? Would it? Every time, I'm sure this guy would, might even get sick of talking about it. Probably not. 
But everywhere you go when you see this guy, it's like, that day was just amazing. Now, every person in this room who's a believer, you were also once dead. Now you have new life. Are we still celebrating that miracle that happened in your life? So when you see a brother or sister in the hallways at Walmart, God saved you. He saved me. Let's tell other people about this awesome God. Agreed? So if we get excited about physical resurrections, let's carry that same level of excitement to what? New spiritual life. Agreed? It's a miracle. Both are miracles. But again, the scriptures clearly tell us that there was a point in our lives where we were all once spiritually dead. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Dead means what? No life, no ability. You live like the the world. But I like one of these words in here. Notice it says, and you were dead. Do you like that word? I don't know. I'm not a big word guy, but when I say you were dead, time for celebration. God saved a dead person like you and me. But also we can see very clearly in scriptures that we were clearly dead in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And it's, the Bible tells us this. And you who were dead, there it is again, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Like the widow's son, you were also once dead, but God miraculously brought you to new life. A question that someone may ask you or be curious about someone who might start coming to church, they might ask you a question along the way. I heard Bobby talking about being spiritually dead. Am I dead? I'm here, but I don't know. Am I in? Am I out? There's many things that you can say to that specific person to show them whether they're dead or alive in Christ. But I just want to walk through one way to discern whether a person is dead or not. Does that sound like a good idea? And one of the ways you can find out if a dead person is indeed dead, is a dead person is not accepting to the things of God. I'm going to say that one more time. How do you know that you're dead? A dead person is not accepting to the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. For dead people, verses like John 14, 6, and this is my wife's favorite verse, one of the favorite verses, John 14, 6 says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. To the world, does that sound ludicrous? Yes. Because it might be offensive to someone else who believes something else. They want to hear that there's many roads to the same God. If you're offended by, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that's probably indicative that you're a dead man. And how do I know that? There was a time where I was a dead man. And I remember very clearly that one day I had an evangelist come to my door, a a good friend of mine now, and he was sharing the gospel with me. And I remember he told me very plainly, I think he used this verse, the only way to heaven is through Jesus. And I said, you're crazy. Guess who was dead? Me. 
Why? Because I rejected the truth of Scripture. If you reject God's word, it's indicative that indeed that you're dead. Also, dead people don't like verses like Romans 10.9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You are saved through faith in Christ, not works. Dead people don't like that stuff. So how do you know if a person is dead? Lots of different ways we can know, but a dead person is not accepting to the things of God. But a little more practical application is this, is that there are dead people everywhere. And so when we're evangelizing to other people, telling them about how God resurrected you or gave you new spiritual life, don't get angry if they say foolishness. They're dead. Don't get angry with dead people when you're sharing the gospel. Why? Because they're dead. They shouldn't know any better. What you should do instead of getting angry is what? Pray. When I share the gospel, I have some really interesting conversations with people sometimes. And sometimes I'm just wondering as this person's sharing, how on God's green earth am I going to get through to this person? I have no idea. So as I'm talking and listening, I'm praying. I'm like, God, I don't know what you're up to, but I need some supernatural help. You can save them. I can't. Help me hang in there. Help me show them scripture. I'm not getting angry because they're dead, but I'm praying that God would give them what? Understanding. Because without the power of God, they don't have it. You with me? Also, we see again here, um, another practical application is this. Since we're surrounded by dead people, don't expect dead people to act like Christians. I can't believe he did that. Well, he's dead. Pray for him. Does that make sense? So as we start realizing that there's dead people, what do we have? More compassion. We still stand up for righteousness, but we have passion, compassion for others because they are dead. But if we go back to our text here, if we go back to our text here, um, you'll see that this man woke up. And I know, I mean, literally, he woke up. And I know in today's society and culture and environment, that woke means a lot of different things. You hear woke a lot on the news. Yeah? And really, if you don't know what woke means, really, in today's culture and environment, being woke means you've been awakened to social justice and racism and culture. Biblically speaking, meaning you woke up means you were dead and God woke you up. So if anyone is woke in our culture today, it's us. So let's get the word back. Agreed? We should be the most woke people around because we were spiritually dead and God granted us new life. So great news. Not only does Jesus wake us up, not only does God wake us up, but he also, in waking us up, breaks us, breaks this chains of sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin when God wakes us up. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, the Bible tells us this. So, even, so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do we still have struggles with sin? Yes. But are we slaves to sin? No, because we have union with Christ. But if you go back to our text, we see the parallels. Again, this man was once dead. We were once spiritually dead. But this man woke up. How? How did he wake up? Jesus called him. Do you see that? He told him, young man, get up. 
And so we see, again, here in this text, he said, young man, I say to you, arise. But notice, this isn't a general, non-responsive call. I know there's many parents in the room, or people who have nieces or nephews or young people around. Many times we give, or there is a non-responsive call that we grant to other people. For example, there are times in my house, unfortunately, very rarely, well, kind of occasionally, well, pretty regularly, where I say, hey, little son, come here. And what do you get? Crickets. Then you're like, oh, he must not have heard me. So you say it again, little guy, come on down. Crickets. That is a non-responsive general call. That is not what is happening here. What is happening here is an effective call where your kid comes immediately. When Jesus calls, guess what? We immediately listen and follow. And we see this in other resurrection accounts where Jesus calls Lazarus. Remember that account very clearly in John chapter 11? And Jesus called out to Lazarus, to the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus was effectually called to wake up. This young man was called to wake up. But again, if you were at the tomb of Lazarus, I think all of us would be at a loss of words. Or Haywood would be running. I'd be far behind. But we would all be flabbergasted. Again, we see this same account in Mark chapter 5. Remember, with the little girl. Jesus tells the little girl to what? Wake up. And what immediately happens? She wakes up. So spiritually speaking, Jesus calls us. God calls us. And what happens? We wake up. And listen, listen, let me read a couple of verses for you, showing you that Jesus or God calls us to wake up or gives us new life. He calls us to himself. In Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8 verses 29 through 30, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In, In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, this is what the Bible said, those who are called may receive promised eternal inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, again, we are called out of darkness into marvelous light. So there is a point in our life, biblically speaking, spiritually speaking, where we had no pulse. And God said, wake up. And guess what happened? We woke up. And we wanted to follow. For example... If someone was in a deep sleep and I went into the room and said, wake up, would that person probably wake up? Yeah. And I might have to negotiate, time to wake up, we got something to do. And I go, oh, I'm up. But they're up. That's not the effectual call that God delivers to us. When God calls us, we want to wake up and we want to follow and we want to obey. So let's do the story one more time. What if I go into someone's room and I say, wake up, there's a fire outside, we gotta go. Guess what that person's doing? He's waking up willingly, desiringly, and he wants to go. He's out of there. 
When God wakes us up, he shows us the glories of Christ and we want to follow with passion and desire because we see clearly who he is. He's woken up our eyes to the glorious Christ, so we want to follow, just like you'd want to run out of that house. Agreed? So here, as we look at this account and how it parallels our salvation, there was a dead man. We were once dead. God called him. God calls us. But there's more. Also notice that this man has new life, as it says in Luke chapter 7, verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. This young man is now breathing, he's speaking, and he's walking back to his mother. Again, I wonder what he's saying to his mom. You ever think about this stuff? Like, what were the conversations? Like, when I go to heaven, I have a lot of questions. I want to know a lot of details. Hey, when you woke up, when Jesus brought you back to life, what did you say to your mom? And you're probably going to expect something profound. He probably said, hey, mom, that's it. But he probably just said that. But notice if this, and, as the, and the older I get, and this might happen to some of you in this room, the older I get and the more I read these accounts in Scripture, how there is a miraculous healing, I'm becoming more and more emotionally impacted by it. Because now with the older I get, and maybe because God has given me a family, now I just don't even see just the person who was healed, but how that healing impacts the surrounding family. For example, I'm sure this young man was excited to be alive again, but how do you think his mother felt? She was probably paralyzed with joy. And in seeing that, it makes you love Jesus all the more. Even when you look at some of these cases where maybe there was someone with a weathered hand or someone who was lame and could not walk, and Jesus comes in and heals them, how is their family feeling? Their family is overjoyed. And we love Christ more because we see that he is compassionate with sinners. So hopefully as you read through these miraculous healings of Christ, you see what Jesus is doing, not just for that person, not just for his family and for the community, but he's also pointing us to how awesome he is. Agreed? So let's keep going here. So uh, Jesus grants us new life. But notice one thing here, that this dead man, could he do anything to get Jesus to resurrect him? No, he's dead. I know it's not a trick question. Could he do anything to earn God's favor as a dead man? No, he's dead. Why was he resurrected? Because of the compassion and grace of God. Why does God give us new spiritual life? Because he's compassionate and gracious. I didn't deserve it, but he gave it to me anyways. Agreed? So as, um, just like this man, we see that Jesus, we see that um, this dead person was called and he was given new life. And this new life that we're granted impacts our thinking, it impacts our affections, and it impacts our lifestyle. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, For, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things pass away, behold, new things have come. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. Oh, I said the same thing twice. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, you're resurrected to new life in Christ. Copy and paste got me on that one. It's okay. But anyways, when you're a new believer, you're given new thinking. You're given new affections. And you're given a new lifestyle. Um, in terms of highlighting our new thinking, Colossians chapter 3, verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. A great question to ask yourself as a Christian is where is my mind at? Is my mind set on the things above? Or is it entangled in the worries of the world? How will you be remembered as a father, as a mother, as a coworker, as a manager, as an employee? Will someone say that person, his mind was set on the things of above? And because his mind was set on the things above, he was great earthly good. He did a lot of awesome stuff because he was always thinking about King Jesus in heaven. Or will you be remembered as a person caught up in the world? As believers, we set our minds on the things above because we see the glories of Christ. But also as we think differently because God has given us a new purpose. If you look at John, or Luke chapter Excuse me, if you look at Luke chapter 19, I believe, verse 3, I think it's 19.3, 19.10. As we think differently, we see our purpose differently. And we see in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the mission of Christ was to seek and save the lost. This is what Jesus says. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. As Christians who think differently, our purpose, our goal is to glorify God in everything that we do, but also to be on mission with King Jesus. One of the assignments that I had in seminary, I took an evangelism class. They really, one of the assignments, I don't think I would get an A in the class unless I did this, but they challenged us to have at least seven evangelistic conversations with someone during the semester. That should be easy. A semester is a few months long. But as we enter 2022, not to make a checklist, but as people who are motivated to be on purpose, on mission with God, I think it would be great if you gave yourself perhaps a challenge to maybe share the gospel with one person a month. You're encountering dead people all the time at Chipotle, at the post office, at FedEx, at the gas station. And if you don't think you can have a gospel conversation with people at those places, you can by being nice and by being intentional. So I think as you're looking at your 2022, as you're doing your fitness goals, your dietary goals, whatever your goals are, how about a goal that's on mission? A goal that is intentional about sharing the gospel with other people. And why would you set us such a goal? Because through life in Christ, he's given us new thinking and new purpose. Let's be on track with that purpose. Agreed? So lastly, we see that Jesus also impacts with our new life, our affections and our attitudes and he also makes us act differently. Now we obey lovingly. John 14, 15 says this. If you love me, you'll obey me. 
Now I desire the things of God because I love God. And so do you. So as we conclude, I just got a couple thoughts as we conclude, and, and these are a couple last thoughts is this. As we read through this text, it is quite clear that we have an amazing Savior. Our Savior is divinely powerful. He resurrects dead people and dead hearts. Agreed? Second thought is this. Our Savior is divinely compassionate with sinners. Do we see this in the text? Yes, he's divinely compassionate in a way that we should emulate him. And thirdly, our Savior is divinely gracious in bringing sinners like us to new life. Amen? Let's pray and let's be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for such a great text from Luke chapter 7. Lord, thank you for reminding us of how awesome you are, Lord, that you resurrect dead people, that you give new life to spiritually dead people, and you give us the opportunity to be on mission with you, Lord, to tell other people about Christ, knowing ultimately it's you who save people, Lord, but you give us a distinct privilege and opportunity to share. Help us to do that. Help us to be on mission with you. Thank you for changing the way we think, the way we feel, and the way that we behave. Help us to emulate Christ in 2022. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.